I wrote this catechism. It's called the Redeemer Catechism, which I knocked around a couple of names, but it's really all about Christ our Redeemer. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today we have a really special podcast in store for everybody. We are interviewing our friend, Jordan Quinley. And we'll talk a little bit more about Jordan and who he is and what he's done. I just want to remind everybody that we love hearing from you. Please write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can go to proclamationmagazine.com, and there you can subscribe to our weekly proclamation email magazine. You can find links to this podcast there. You can find links to our YouTube channel. And you can also donate to Life Assurance Ministries if you wish. And if you're hearing this podcast and you have not yet signed up to be part of our 2022 Former Adventist Conference, you can do that. You can do that at proclamationmagazine.com. It's also free this year, so if you can come in person or online, don't let the concern about a registration fee hold you up. You can participate. Today we're talking to Jordan, and this program is going to be the end of our How to Live as a Christian After Adventism. And we're talking to Jordan because we want you all to have an example of what it means to be a lifelong learner. Now, I know that sounds terribly educational, and it sounds like things I learned when I was teaching. But the fact is that once we discover Adventism is wrong, and we leave. And after we join a Christian church, that's not where our learning stops. The Bible is a vast book. It's deep and rich and real. And Jordan, who has never been Adventist, is a great example of somebody who has continued to learn and has done some remarkable things in the process. So welcome to our podcast, Jordan. Thank you. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm I'm really excited to be here, actually. So, Jordan, um, I want to just ask you really quickly if you can tell us who you are and what you do, and if you remember how you met us. I have a vivid memory of how I met you, but I'd just like to hear you talk about that. I, I know Colleen and Nikki now from church. We go to the same church, and I live in a local town. I'm a working professional here. I work as a, an assistant in a law office, and I think that we met at a word search Bible study that Gary Inrig was teaching. My wife and I started going, and I, I think that's where we originally met. This is a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And I actually think I was aware of you before that, because I, okay. I used to be a women's Bible study table leader along with your wife, and we would sit okay. in the leaders' meetings together, and I remember the night she came up to me and said, do you need a proofreader for Proclamation Magazine? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> And I said, well, yes. And she said, my husband is a professional proofreader. And I frankly didn't know such people existed. She said he has studied and has a certificate in proofreading. And Jordan, you proofread Proclamation for years. Yeah, I did. I, I enjoyed doing it. The, the print version hasn't been out in a while. No, it hasn't. So I haven't done it in a while, but it was fun. It was. And we loved your proofreading. You knew stuff I'd never heard of, and you upped the quality of our printed magazine <laughs> by a lot. And I also want to say that you are a blogger mm -hmm. for our weekly 
blog. I mean, you don't blog every week, but mm-hmm. you're one of our bloggers. So you may have seen his name, and he has written about the physicalism of the Adventist God, and that's been very insightful. Yes. So Jordan, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing as a believer? Yeah, You've been a believer, a believer for a long time. Essentially my whole life, as far as anyone can say that. Um, I grew up with parents who believed the gospel, and I was very um, fortunate to do that uh, in God's providence. I went to church. I never had a time of, of serious doubt in my life. I, I was always convinced that the Bible was the Word of God. And I grew up going to the church where David Jeremiah preached in San Diego County. That was our church, and it was a fairly mainline evangelical Baptistic church, and there was good teaching there. I don't hold to all of the views that I held to back then, but those are all secondary issues. The gospel was preached, the word of God was opened, the preaching was expository, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that background. You know, you're here today partly because you've done something I don't know anybody else personally who has done, and you have written a New Covenant catechism. And before we explain any of that, I just want to say there's background to this. Yeah. People who think about catechisms generally come from a Reformed tradition as opposed to a more, I don't know, what do you want to say, Pentecostal or free will? Just evangelical. Evangelical, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Reformed or Catholic, primarily. What led to this? Because you didn't grow up with a catechism, correct? No, that's right. Tell us about your progression. How did you come in towards a more Reformed view of soteriology? And how would you explain what that is? Okay, Reformed view of soteriology. Well, when I was in high school, I had a friend who believed in Calvinism, which uh, involves the idea that God is sovereign in how he exercises and dispenses his grace. He's sovereign in electing whom to save, and he's actually sovereign over all things. He's the maker of all things, and he is in charge of all things, and he disposes all things uh, as he sees fit. And I was fairly resistant to this this idea, but he kept bringing it up. So eventually I read this book called Tulip, you know, the <laughs> five points of Calvinism. It made some pretty good points. I continued looking into this and, and reading, and the more I saw that this idea was all over the New Testament. Ephesians 1 is a major passage. It talks about not just our salvation, but that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And I really had to come to terms with that, submit to that, and understand that that is, in fact, the case. God is that big. God is not wringing his hands, not reacting to things the way we do, but God superintends all of history, and he is the sovereign ruler. And, of course, that includes uh, whom he saves, whom he does not save, and that was the beginning, and from there I wanted to learn more about Reformed theology, everything that seemed to kind of go with this idea, and discovering that whole side of theology and R.C. Sproul, and learning more and more, and for like the next 10 years, just learning more about Reformed theology in general, not just the five points of Calvinism, but the uh, traditions that sprang from the Reformation there's Lutheran, there was Reformed, and then there was Reformed Baptist, and figuring all of this stuff out. And they're more different than you might think. Yes. I mean, at first. Yes. Yeah. Actually, the Lutheran view of the law is actually a lot closer to 
our view than the reformed. Yeah. It's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, that's um, true. Though I don't know if there's complete unanimity right. uh, among Lutherans. But just learning all of this, uh, attending churches that were confessionally reformed, and that's where I was introduced to the idea of confessionalism and the idea of catechisms and learning from catechisms. You know, a catechism is just a series of questions and answers right. that teach the basics of the faith. Now, for those of us who are former Adventists, the terms that Jordan is using need some clarification. <laughs> because I didn't know what a confessional church was when I left Adventism. And I want to make it clear that we are not saying you have to be a Calvinist, or you have right. to be a dispensationalist, or you have to belong to a confessional church. These things are not the definition of true worship. True worship is defined in scripture, and it doesn't include a confession, although it does include believing in Jesus and knowing who he is. So I just want to say this, because I know our audience, it's who we were. We've often been told at Life Assurance Ministries that we're too Calvinist. Other people come to us and say, you're way too Arminian. And I want to say, we try to follow what the Bible says. And all of these views within Christianity find support for their views in Scripture. And sometimes they seem to disagree with each other. But I just want to say this. If you believe everything the Bible says, sometimes it appears that you have to hold on to things that look at first glance like they disagree with each other. And yet they're there. And there is harmony in them if you submit to the Word and you allow the Holy Spirit to teach you. So I just want to make that disclaimer up front. Mm -hmm. We're not teaching Calvinism. We're not teaching dispensationalism. We're trying to teach what the Bible says. And Jordan was on that journey of discovering that there was more than he had learned. And, and hopefully still am. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. So, Jordan, could you explain to us what a confessional church is? Because I know former Adventists sometimes need to have that explained. We just have never heard of it. A confessional church is a church that has adopted one of the typically post-Reformation confessional statements as their church's statement of faith. Usually these churches are denominational, so they belong to a denomination or if they're Baptistic, it's more usually an association of churches that hold to this statement. A confession is just a long statement of beliefs. Most churches will have a statement of faith. It might include like seven points or something, mm -hmm. what we believe about God, what we believe about the Trinity, what we believe about Christ, what we believe about Scripture, what we believe about man, what we believe about final judgment, something mm -hmm. like that, and be relatively brief. A confession is a longer statement. Name us some of the confessions that are most common. The uh, Westminster Confession is probably the most well-known. And it's generally associated with which denomination or denominations? In the United States, at least, two denominations, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, OPC, and the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. The uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession is another, is another common one, and it is based on the Westminster Confession, largely. And that is associated with the Reformed Baptist Church, right? Yes, Reformed Baptist view. Okay. Yeah. So do each of these confessional churches have their own catechisms, or is there a crossover? No, they typically use a catechism that was, you know, like a 17th century catechism. Okay. 
And so I did not understand what a catechism was when I first came out of Adventism. This is something that's primarily used in Sunday schools or for adults or how do they? It depends on the tradition. A lot of churches will use a catechism in Sunday school as a Sunday school curriculum. Dutch Reformed churches will typically recite a selection of questions every Lord's Day. Sometimes as a reader response thing, well, they, they will ask the question and uh, the congregation will recite the answer to the question. So th- they're used in different ways. They're also just used at home for family devotions and family study. You know, as an example, some people listening may not even know what we mean by the questions. Um, I know one of the questions that has been the most recited to me by other people is, for example, the question, what is the chief purpose of man? Mm -hmm. And the answer then would be? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So a catechism is composed of questions such as this, a question and answer format Mm -hmm. that helps people learn essential biblical truth. It's not a substitute for studying the Bible, but it's like a shorthanded textbook way to get a worldview taught to somebody. And each question and answer is supported by a series of texts. Yes. Now, I know, I just have to admit, the first time I looked at a catechism, it looked an awful lot like the 28 Fundamental Beliefs. Yes. Not the same thing. No. (laughs) Not the same thing. Yeah, it's based on the Bible. Mm -hmm. That's probably the main difference. So, like the Anglican Church, for example, has the 39 Articles. You know, the format's probably going to look something like 28 Fundamental Beliefs. Mm -hmm. Uh It's not wrong to have a list of beliefs and saying, look, this is what our communion believes. Right. Mm -hmm. It just needs to be accurate. (laughs) (laughs) I would would concur. Right. It can be wrong beliefs or it can be right beliefs. Mm -hmm. But it needs to be accurate. Okay. Now that brings us fast forwarding to your discovering that there was more to salvation than you had understood as a child. Mm -hmm. So what was your next step? You moved towards... What denomination? As I was parsing this out in my mind during that time, it was an exciting time. I was learning a lot. But Are you um, high school at this point? No. By this time, I'm in college. Okay, college. Yeah. I'm drawn to the Reformed Baptist tradition, adherence to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Like the Presbyterians, this, this tradition is a tradition that holds to covenant theology as their theological framework. Mm -hmm. That is, when I say theological framework, I'm talking about an overarching system for understanding how all of Scripture fits together, what it's pointing to. I don't think it's wrong to have such a system. I think actually that you need to have one if you believe that the Bible does not contradict itself. Yeah, It's just important that it be... Accurate again, that, right? Right. <laughs> that it be based on a biblical theology. So can you just summarize what covenant theology is? I will try to. Okay. And um, you're sure to get someone uh, who says I get it wrong. <laughs> covenant theology is a theological framework that, that views the plan of redemption through two primary covenants. The uh, covenant of redemption, which was made among the members of the Trinity in eternity past, and the covenant of grace. So I should say that in covenant theology, uh, they believe that Adam was put under a covenant of works, that he failed. So God established a covenant of grace, and this covenant of grace 
overarches the entire narrative of Scripture. And may I just interject here? I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but for those of our audience who are former Adventists or questioning Adventists, they may feel their eyes glazing over a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are not covenants that are named in the Bible. No. And that is my big concern with okay. this framework. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. According to covenant theology, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the New Covenant are all uh, subsumed under this covenant of grace. So they're described actually as just different administrations of the covenant of grace. Which reminds me a little of our Adventist view that there's just one covenant, just different expressions of it, mm-hmm. so that the law is eternal and it's just one covenant. So there's something similar there. That does sound similar, yeah. Mm-hmm. It does sound similar. You know, the issue with that is that it, it tends to reduce the distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and I think that there is a, uh, a sharp relief between the Old and the New. Yes. I mean, you they're really different. get this. They're very different. It, the New is so much better. <laughs> you get this not only all over Hebrews, but you get this in Second Corinthians Second 3. Corinthians Second 3. Corinthians 3, yeah, the ministry of the Old Covenant, the mm-hmm. ministry of the New Covenant. I mean, it's night and day. It is. It's night and day. And while the Old Covenant was an essential part of God's unfolding plan of redemption, it came with glory, but compared to the New Covenant, it's almost like it had hardly any glory. That's right. What we live in now is the age of reality, the age of fulfillment. And that was the age of shadows. It's so much different. Oh, great point. Okay, as a Christian, mm-hmm. you're going to hear people who hold to covenant theology mm-hmm. speak about the new covenant. You're going to hear them use those terms because they're in scripture. So I know I have over the years, especially early on, been very confused about the difference between covenant theology and new covenant theology, especially when covenant theologians talk about the new covenant. It got very confusing for me. So how would you distinguish the two? How would you describe the two differences? Okay. Everybody talks about the new covenant um, (laughs) because Jesus talked about the new covenant and the New Testament talks about the new covenant. So first of all, the, just the term New Covenant Theology can be a little bit confusing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean Covenant Theology 2.0. It means a theology of the New Covenant. Yes. So there's that. The difference is in how New Covenant Theology relates the old to the new mm-hmm. and understands the progressive nature of God's redemptive plan in Christ. Mm-hmm. Just by way of clarification, yeah. one of the things that I have done in my head as I've tried to understand these different frameworks, mm-hmm. covenant theology, it kind of has a man-made assignment of this overarching covenant of grace. You know, it's not named in the Bible, but God is eternal, and He is the same, and He never changes. Mm-hmm. And one of the arguments that I grew up learning is that the covenant God made with Israel continues for us because God does not change, so his law would not change. And they equate God and his law with the Ten Commandments. So then they have to say the Ten Commandments preceded Israel. Predated Moses. Predated Moses and goes into eternity. And there's something similar about that with covenant theology, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the Westminster or 1689 Baptist Confession, you will see that um, God wrote a law on the heart of Adam when he was created, and he gave that same law 
on stone tablets through oh. Moses. Oh, it says that in the Westminster. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. But that's not in the Bible. No. <laughs> and you know what I want to no, say is not. there are covenant theology believers who are true Christians because they understand what Jesus did. Absolutely. But what I want to say is that Adventism borrowed that construct and inserted Ellen White's great controversy view on it. So if there's something that sounds familiar between covenant theology and Adventism, it's because there is. There's that framework of the eternal covenant. But Adventism misused it even more than covenant theology did. That's very interesting. They put Ellen White's framework into that. Yeah. And that is really twisted. So I'm speaking with someone presently who's in the process of questioning Adventism and and they're hung up on that last step, right? What do I do with the Sabbath? Mm -hmm. And so she's reaching out and speaking to a lot of people looking for churches. And she keeps hearing that we keep Sunday Sabbath because that's when the church decided to meet because Jesus was raised from the dead. And so, so she's bumping into a lot of people who hold to covenant theology, who are trying to explain the Sabbath as being changed at some point. Mm -hmm. And she was raised an Adventist. She was raised, no, that's not how it works. The Sabbath is the seventh day. Mm -hmm. And so it's a hurdle for her in coming out of Adventism and into an understanding, a full understanding of the gospel. And that's been a, a point of frustration for me in working with Life Assurance Ministries to, to reach people and coming up against that. Yeah. How do you have that discussion with people when there are true brothers and sisters in Christ who hold to covenant theology and who are confusing the matter of the Sabbath? That's tricky because our Reformed brothers and sisters can hold to the Sabbath pretty strongly. Yeah, only as a first-day Sabbath. But a first-day Sabbath, yeah, first-day Sabbath. So... There can be some pretty eloquent arguments made for why the the Sabbath day was changed from the seventh day to the first day. You know, the first day Sabbath represents the eighth day. This is because this is this is the beginning of the new creation. Um, you know, in the old covenant, they had to work first and then they could rest in God. Here, we rest first and then we do our works. Oh, there's all these great arguments, and they sound so. They sound pretty cool. <laughs> the, 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 the problem is. Making a New Testament argument that the Sabbath day was changed is very, very difficult. It's weak. It's not that early. Yeah, especially when, you know, like, it, for instance, the Gospels refer to the women came on the first day after the Sabbath, and that was written well into the church age, yeah. it seems. The Sabbath was the seventh day. And by the way, part of the Sabbath commandment, six days shall you work. Uh-huh. The seventh day is holy to the Lord. So. Working six days is also part of the commandment. So if you take right. a two-day weekend... <laughs> Believe me, my mother-in-law used to actually adhere to that. She, I'm impressed, yes, actually. Oh, wow. Yes, she was a true seventh-day Adventist. Wow. Just on a Gentile calendar. On a Gentile calendar. <laughs> you just have to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Some of the best things you can do is to show them that the Reformed view of the Sabbath is also mistaken. There are some great books about this, but really, you know, Galatians, Colossians, Galatians. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's some great books, including Hebrews, um, Colossians, Romans 14. Yeah. Uh, Before you can deal with the theology of the Sabbath, you have to understand the theology of the 10 commandments. Yes. Where do they fit in? Yes. How do they play or do they in the life of the Christian? Because if you don't understand the place of the 10 commandments, 
you're not going to understand the, the place of the Sabbath because it's one of the Ten Commandments. Okay. So how did you get there? When I was into Reformed theology, and interestingly, I was never convinced that Sabbath-keeping was required for Christians. Now, why not? Because you were into Reformed theology. That's right. The reason I wasn't was because of what I was reading in Colossians 2, Romans 14, Hebrews 3 and 4. I want everybody to hear that. Write those texts down. (laughs) He was studying the New Testament, and he could see what it said about the Sabbath. Yeah. It's also why I never um, was convinced of uh, infant baptism either. That was prickly for me Mm -hmm. because... According to my my overall understanding, the Ten Commandments represented the moral law of God, which were still binding, were still valid. Um, we were still under their jurisdiction, as it were. If the Ten Commandments were still an authority for us as law, then why why not the Sabbath? Because it's mm-hmm. the fourth commandment. It's right there, right in the middle. Mm-hmm. I had ways of, of thinking about that. Eventually, I, I just... I was like, this really isn't consistent, so... You had cognitive dissonance, like so many of us did. Yes, I had cognitive dissonance. So did you look within the the Reformed community to answer some of those questions? And were you satisfied with what you found? There are some Reformed uh, people who do not hold that the Sabbath is a binding law for for Christians, a one day and seven rest period. J.E. Adams would be an example can't think of too many more, actually. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the minority view, by far. All of the Reformed confessions uphold the Sabbath, Sabbath-keeping, Christian Sabbath, Sunday Sabbath. There are arguments that the Sabbath is no longer an authoritative law f- for, for New Covenant believers are good. Uh, how they fit it into their covenant theology, it's kind of a concession, you know? It's almost like taking a jigsaw puzzle and putting it into an almost right hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, I can see that this is true, and we just have to accept that. Mm-hmm. But I still uphold the Ten Commandments. It's ceremonial, the other nine are moral. Mm. Yeah. How did you How did you come to understand the position of the law? I had to do some searching on that. I knew that what I believed didn't really hold together. I had to find out if there is a view that really understands the fulfillment theology of the New Testament. So the New Testament describes the time we live in as the culmination of the ages. It does. Or the end of the ages. Mm -hmm. And that Christ is the culmination of the law for those who believe, the end of the law. Paul says that we're not under the law. We're not under the law. The Reformed response is either that he means... We're not under the law as a covenant of works to be saved by it, or that we're not under the civil and ceremonial law. But either of those is weak. Yeah. When Paul talks about the law, he means Torah, and the law is a unit, and we're either under it or we're not. That's right. And so I had to look at something different. And, you know, obviously, I'm not the only person to, to start seeing this stuff. There is a name for it. It was called New Covenant Theology. And I started reading and listening to lots and lots of resources that were pointing out from Scripture this theological understanding where, you know, the Old Covenant served a purpose in God's plan of redemption. That purpose is fulfilled in Christ. Mm -hmm. That covenant is made obsolete, which is just what the book of Hebrews says. Yes, it is. (laughs) And that covenant means the whole thing. 
Yeah. The Ten Commandments are the founding document of the Old Covenant. They're called the, the Tablets of the Covenant. They're yes. an express part of the Old Covenant. So the Old Covenant's done away with, so are the Ten Commandments. This understanding is called New Covenant Theology or Progressive mm-hmm. Covenantalism. And it's interesting that you'd mentioned earlier 2 Corinthians 3. Mm-hmm. That's the clearest chapter I know that succinctly summarizes the contrast between the law written on stone, on stone. and the law governed by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that comes through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Yes. And that's an important point. We're not antinomian now. No. So can you talk about the law of God? The law of God in any age is what God demands of people Mm -hmm. at that time. And God's plan of redemption is punctuated by a series of covenants made with certain parties, human parties, each of which has certain requirements, you know, unique to that covenant. Not all the requirements are unique. God's righteous character stays the same. So there's going to be a lot of overlap in what God requires of us, how we live. Because he's the author of them all. Of course. You have to follow God's law as it is revealed to you in the time and place where you live. We're not under the old covenant anymore. Right. We're under the new covenant. And Christ has come and he's given us a new, a new law, actually a new way of life that is based upon his love for us. He exemplifies love. He asked his disciples to do the same, to do it as he did it. That was a new commandment. Yeah. And he's given us the spirit. Yes. To aid us, to teach us, to lead us in this new way of life. And that's different from the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit has always been. The Holy Spirit came upon people all through the Old Testament. But the indwelling, never-leaving Holy Spirit is unique to the New Covenant for those who believe. Absolutely. That's why covenant theology is wrong about something else, which is that the Israelite community in the wilderness was was also the church. I agree. It is not the the same. The church was not inaugurated, could not have been inaugurated until the Spirit was given. The Spirit was not given until after the ascension of Christ. Right. John 17, Spirit had not yet been given, and we know that he said that he would go away, but that would actually be better because the Father and he he, would send the Holy Spirit to us. And Acts 2, there it came. Yes, there it came. The church was born. The church was born. The church was born. And Christ, uh, the New Testament says, as part of his exaltation, was made head over all things for the church. Yes. There was no headless church. Exactly. You cannot disengage the body from the head. Yes, exactly. We don't leave the house and leave our head at home on some days. (laughs) No. Well. (laughs) Yeah, well. (laughs) So, Jordan, as this has become... Um, ingrained in your thinking and understanding as you read scripture. Yeah. What did you feel compelled to do? And that's one of the things that we wanted to talk about today. Okay. So yeah, great. That was all a great introduction. As I became familiar with Reformed theology, there's a lot that I want to get out of. I don't want to throw it under the bus. Uh, I learned so much. Well, the fact that salvation is all of God is... That's core in Reformed theology, yes, and that's absolutely yes. true. And it's mm-hmm. the Bible. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But one of the things I came to appreciate were their documents 
And that included catechisms. They were new to me, but I was like, wow, this is really, this is really a wonderful teaching tool. This is really a good idea. When I came to New Covenant Theology, I was reading all of these uh, theologians who teach from this perspective, Gary D. Long, John Riesinger, Blake White, whose books are still available. They're mm-hmm. out there. You can get them. I just want to make a plug for a very small book by John Riesinger called But I Say Unto You. Mm. I'm in the middle of that book right now. It is a very good book. If anybody wants just a little introduction to the idea of the law of Christ, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I would just mention a follow-up to that okay. book. In Defense of Jesus, a new law, The New Lawgiver. Oh, that's good, too. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Yes. So I was like, has anyone written a catechism from a, a New Covenant theology perspective? There was one. It's called Catechids, in fact. Uh-huh. It's by a guy named Joel Setacase. I've actually interacted with him. But it's geared towards very young children, so mm-hmm. it wasn't quite what I was looking for. I wanted something a little bit more robust that was kind of an intermediate catechism, like the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That there was no such thing that I could find. It did just it just didn't exist. I felt like this was a gap mm-hmm. that should be filled. I was like, you know, mm-hmm. I wish there were something like this. That mm-hmm. would be great. So I decided to write one, but with much fear and trepidation. Actually, what I <laughs> wanted to do at first was make a like a draft and then send it to some New Covenant Theology institution or ministry and be like, hey, you know, maybe uh, this could be a springboard for a New Covenant Theology catechism that, you know, qualified people could write. (laughs) (laughs) Well, knowing what I know about your grasp of grammar and the language, I do think you are a logical person to write this. So tell us about it. Tell us what you did that was different mm-hmm. and what it's called and so forth. Yeah. I wrote this catechism. It's called the Redeemer Catechism, which I knocked around a couple of names, but it's really all about Christ our Redeemer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is really emphasized very well. And I think as the New Testament emphasizes it in New Covenant theology, that Christ is the whole point and God's salvation through him. That's where it all ends up. That's where it was all going to begin with. And Mm -hmm. so um, Redeemer Catechism had a nice ring to it. It seemed to to fit. The first thing to emphasize is that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Anyone familiar with the beloved Reformed Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, will immediately see that there's a lot borrowed Uh from those catechisms, although I made every answer carefully. Um, it wasn't just a, a copy and paste kind of work. But of course, those catechisms, when it comes to Christian ethics, put major emphasis on the Ten Commandments because that's the core of what they say a Christian is supposed to obey. Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, not to mention the Westminster Larger Catechism, <laughs> yeah, they have over 30 questions on the Ten Commandments. For the church. For the church, mm-hmm. yeah, because yeah. that's the core of Christian living. Right. is following the Ten Commandments. And so that needed to change. So your part three, yeah. law, covenant, and life in Christ, is essentially new material, isn't it? That's right, yeah, which made it the most difficult to write. Nikki, I know we talked a little about this before. As we read this, we were just kind of overwhelmed with how accurately Jordan's questions and answers reflect our understanding of the new covenant. Yeah, it was really exciting to read this. I've never seen anything like this before. And in fact, I'm excited to do this with my own children 
what if we just read a few of the questions and answers just so our audience gets a hint of what it is Jordan has done here? On question 46, how about I read the question, you read the answer for a few of these, and we'll just let, is that all right? Yeah, yeah, great. Okay. I'm going to start with 46. What does God require of all people? And just by the way, you who are former Adventists will know what Adventists would say, the Ten Commandments. Right. Okay, go ahead. God requires that all people in faith obey his revealed demands, which may be called God's law. Now, isn't that great? It's so different from, <laughs> from God's it. revealed. This takes my mind, honestly, back to Hebrews, the hall of faith. Yes. Those people obeyed God by faith, by obeying what he commanded them to do at their moment in time. Right. Noah didn't have the law, but he obeyed God, God's demands. That's right. Abraham as well. Abraham too. There's a huge section in Hebrews 11 on Abraham and Sarah, mm-hmm. and they didn't have the law, but no, they obeyed they God. they did not have the law, the but Mosaic they had God. law. They had God telling them, do this, Yeah. and they obeyed, and that's... God's, that was God's law for them. Right. Now, 47 is a spinoff from 46. What is the essence of God's law? The essence of God's law is the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Every administration of God's law depends on these. I love that last sentence. Mm -hmm. It took it right out of the Ten Commandments and said, in every era of history... Before the law, after the law, during the law, whichever area you're looking at, God's demands for his people were always hanging on those two great commands, which makes the core of it. That helps us understand Jesus saying these are the two greatest commandments. Yeah. It's not the two tablets of the law, um, love for God and love for neighbor. No, it's not. I mean, the Mosaic administration of God's law depended on these two, hung on these, but it's not the only um, proper expression of that's these two right. commandments. Very well said. And that's why we can read now where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we don't have to trigger back to the Ten Commandments. Whose commandments? It's the commandments <laughs> of Christ. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we were not taught that. We were taught that the word commandments in the New Testament always meant the Ten. Yeah. We were taught that's the definition of the word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what he was always talking that's just about. just not true. It's not true. Okay, 49. Have any revealed demands of God ever changed? God has at times required different things of different people. Every demand of God is nonetheless consistent with his righteous character, so that many principles persist through every administration of God's law. And I want to say, have any revealed demands of God ever changed? God has never asked me not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. But the command was consistent with what he asks of me now, to trust him when I can't see the future. That's right. Mm -hmm. To believe in the Son. Yeah, Mm -hmm. good. That's right. That's exactly right. 50. Has the purpose of God changed throughout the history of redemption? No. All of God's dealings with humanity have been part of God's one eternal purpose to establish his kingdom on earth by reclaiming for himself a special people through the work of the promised redeemer, Jesus Christ. And there we have it, Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. the core of what everything is leading to. Everything that's happened in God's purposes with man have been directed and directing us to the Lord Jesus. That's exactly right. And that's a big point in how the new covenant, you know, explains the fulfillment of the old 
And it's a major emphasis in New Covenant theology. It's, it, it gets its proper emphasis in New Covenant theology, the emphasis it deserves right. based on the writings of the New Testament. In fact, if we go back to question three and four, these are, uh-huh. these are new. They're not really taken from previous catechisms. And, because right. to talk about question two, where can we learn how to glorify God and delight in Him? The answer is basically from the scriptures. Right. So I wanted three and four... You know, what is the central theme of the whole Bible? Because you need to understand that. As you're oh, reading yes. the Old Testament, you need to understand that, to quote Blake White, he's another guy, Jesus may not be under every rock, but he's the landscape. Yeah. You know, if you're not seeing him in the Old Testament, you're not looking hard enough. Or you're not looking with the proper eyes. The central theme of the whole Bible is him. Jesus said this himself. You know, he said that if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Yeah, he did say that. Wow. And it, it's not just that one place. These proof texts here, I mean, the, the ones in Acts are... Mm-hmm. That's true. Just amazing, yeah. So the central theme of the whole Bible is Jesus Christ and God's gracious salvation through him and for his glory. So there, there are several things that the whole Bible is, is moving towards Christ at the center, mm-hmm. the plan of redemption is the overarching scheme with the exaltation of Christ as its culmination. And, you know, I just want to say by contrast, my understanding of covenant theology, I have read some, but not exhaustively. So I'll, I'll make that disclaimer. Yeah, sure. I don't know an exhaustive amount about covenant theology, but I did read a very interesting, succinct explanation of it years ago by covenant theologian John Murray. And when I was done reading that, I realized that the difference between his understanding of the Bible and mine is that his view of the Bible is that covenant was the core mm-hmm. of the message. And I understood Jesus to be. So as I read his document on covenant theology, I heard him, I saw him using the new covenant and the explanation of Jesus as just expanding and exalting covenant, where covenant, in my perspective, is something that God does with people to reveal himself. The purpose of God and Jesus is not to reveal covenant. Covenant reveals God and Jesus. It's well put, yeah. Yes, covenants reveal God and Jesus. That's actually very well put. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, actually, question 51 gets into that. Question 51. Why have any of God's laws ever changed if his purpose has not changed? It was God's intent that in the outworking of his unchanging purpose, a series of covenants, each imposing unique obligations on those with whom it was made, would reveal more about him, further establish his saving reign, and in a variety of ways prepare the world for the arrival of Christ at the culmination of the ages. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know what? I just want to quickly say, have his laws ever changed? If his purpose has not changed, yes. He has different administrations and the laws are for different purposes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They're all leading up to the new covenant. The new covenant, this is it. You know, this is the end. This is what we've been waiting for. (laughs) It will be further culminated Mm -hmm. and consummated when Christ comes again and establishes the eternal state, of course. But Christ has come. And the end of the ages has come upon us because of that. So there's, there's no covenant that comes after the new covenant. This is what we've all been waiting for. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. 
So can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like for you to move? I mean, internally, in your heart, what has it been like to move from your previous understanding into this understanding of the new covenant? I've been very much moved by the uh, kind of a fresh understanding that the heart of new covenant ethics is love as exemplified by Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit. When you think about how do you treat others, how do you conduct yourself What's your disposition toward other people? Like, that's really big. And there's so many passages in the New Testament about love as being the core of how a Christian is to follow God. That kind of reframing and that perspective, it was really big for me. Mm -hmm. Everything that we're supposed to do, the core of um, how we're supposed to behave is based on loving as Christ did. When the New Testament says, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, the basis of our forgiveness there is that we've been forgiven. The finished Uh, work of Christ. Yeah. So love as he did. The old covenant was a law covenant. Yes. And laws were central. That's why I said the Ten Commandments were the founding document. They were also the principal law of the old covenant. They were the the core terms of of the covenant. In the new covenant era, there are do's and don'ts. Sure. Mm-hmm. There absolutely are. But you never like find all of them in one place, like in a tidy list, mm-hmm. because they're not the focus. Right. All of the do's and don'ts that there are in the New Testament is really just saying, this is what love looks like. Right. <laughs> Anger, um, lashing out, filthy talk from your mouths, all of these things. Let the one who used to steal, steal no longer, work with his hands so that he can provide for those in need. All of these are just outworkings of what a life of love looks like. Yes, and like we've often spoken about on this podcast, Nikki, we have to remember the indicatives and the imperatives. Mm -hmm. And the commands in the New Testament are commands for believers. The indicative is these are people. We are people who have trusted in Jesus, in his finished work. We've placed our faith in him. And when we have done that, as you've said, Jordan, he gives us his Holy Spirit he gives us spiritual life. Yeah. He transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. And then these commands become the way we grow. These are not the things mm-hmm. that we're told to do in order to reveal our sin like the law was or in order to gain yeah. favor with God. No. These are things that come after. These imperatives come after the indicative of being born again. Mm-hmm. And the new covenant is completely different because it is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son who did everything necessary on our behalf as our substitute. And when we trust him, the Father sees us in Christ and mm-hmm. all of these commands are facilitated by God the Spirit who teaches us to live by love. Yeah, who teaches us to live by love. Question 58 of the Catechism and question 62 come into play with Mm -hmm. with what you've just been saying. So Jordan, what is your hope for the Catechism? What is your hope for Redeemer Catechism? And tell us how people can find it. What I really want is a uh, tool that can be used to teach the basics of the Christian faith so that Christ will be made known and exalted Really, this should further your love of God. I mean, if it's reflecting what the scriptures teach, then the story is so amazing. It's such outrageous grace. 
setting your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, hopefully the Redeemer Catechism uh, is an instrument for yes. that. That's my hope for it. You know, Christianity's big. Mm-hmm. The Bible is, you know, it's like twice as long <laughs> as the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so, so there's a lot there. A catechism is used to just give you like a skeleton mm-hmm. of the Christian faith that should be fleshed out by a lifetime of, of learning and following in Christ's footsteps. But it's just there to help you give the core in an organized manner so that you can think about God and what he's done rightly mm-hmm. and handle the scriptures rightly. The way you've incorporated the fulfillment of the law in the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus being the core of the new covenant is so helpful. It kind of removes the cognitive dissonance that previous catechisms have left in my head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that this is exalting Jesus and showing what the new covenant is. Where can our listeners find it? Yeah. Okay, great. So right now the uh, this catechism is posted online at redeemercatechism.wordpress.com. Redeemercatechism.wordpress.com. Mm-hmm. That is the primary place to uh, to find it. And I just want to say that in the appendix, you have a, a nice suggested breakdown for 52 weeks of meditations. So there's a PDF download on the webpage, and that's in the PDF. That's great. And for our European friends, I have it in A4 format, as well as um, regular letter format. <laughs> Great. So there you go. Yeah, it's it's available in both. <laughs> Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. It is really an honor to talk about your catechism and to hear your story of how you've progressed from classic covenant theology to new covenant theology and the amazing perspective that opens up when you see that Jesus, not a structure, is the center of life. Mm-hmm. So as we conclude our series on how to live the life after Adventism, I just want to leave you all with this challenge. Don't settle. Now that you know Adventism is wrong, now that you know what the gospel is defined as, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, don't feel that you have learned everything there is to know. Dig into the Bible. Read it copy it, memorize it, and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you in deeper and deeper ways what it means to belong to God, to be his adopted son and daughter, and to be what Jesus said, one of his brothers or sisters. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails with ministry news and online articles that are new, delivered to your inbox every week. You can like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out the notes to our podcast. You'll find a link there for Redeemer Catechism. You can also sign up for our 2022 conference at proclamationmagazine.com. And join us next week for our live FAF conference, where we are going to discuss death and life. And we'll see you next week.